How many remember that we have a ministry of reminding? How many know that repetition is the best teacher? Good. All right. So I'm going to repeat last year's sermon for the new year. Talk to you about a uh, spiritual game plan. Notice it's a spiritual game plan. We are first and foremost spiritual beings. I, I always view myself as a spiritual being living in this earth suit. And this earth suit is going to fall off one day, and I'm going to receive a spiritual body that will equip me to be, actually be able to live in the very presence of God. So we're spiritual. Every problem we have has a spiritual genesis. Every issue of our life has a spiritual foundation. The truth is spiritual truth. And so we need a spiritual game plan for our life. And so I want to rehearse with you. A number of people did, as I suggested earlier. Uh, one mini church uh, has been rehearsing these principles all year and has found it very, very helpful in their life. And other people have shared with me that uh, they, they're very, very thankful for the message from last, last year, how it's benefited them. And uh, so I thought, well, if that's good, I'm going to repeat it so that those who didn't hear it get to hear it, and those who heard it and didn't do anything about it, maybe we'll do something, and those who heard it and didn't do something about it will go, yes, I'm going to do it again. So I think I covered all the bases. So we're in Psalm 119. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. 2004 is in the books, isn't it? 2004 is in the books. Some people would say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. We, you know, every day we just keep living our life. We do mark off time. We do mark it off in seasons and, and uh, years. We celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and things like that. Those, those are very, very human dynamics. And so as we are here now anticipating a whole new year, uh, 12 months ahead of us, uh, 12 months largely of the unknown. Would you agree? I mean, we can project certain things. We have certain plans for the year. Um, we anticipate certain things and so forth. But largely, uh, sandwiched between yesterday, January 1st, and December 31st at the end of this new year, uh, really are 12 exciting, unlived months of, depending on your perspective, opportunities or challenges, right? And life really is one large opportunity. Opportunity to learn to praise God, opportunities to learn to trust Him, opportunities to learn to grow, to respond to what He allows or indeed brings into our life. Challenges uh, brought on by change await us. There isn't a single one of us in this room this morning that aren't going to experience challenges. Uh, things are going to change in our life and they're going to challenge us. And uh, many of us, if not all, certainly, or to one degree or another, are going to be um, moved out of a certain area of comfort. Doesn't that sound exciting? I don't know about you, but I like my comfort zone. I don't want it disrupted, but I know that it's going to be disrupted. And I know logically, rationally, that it's good for me, but at the same time, I wrestle and struggle with that. I'm not exactly enthusiastic about being moved out of my comfort zone. Um, 
But the question is, will I respond appropriately or will I react to it? Will I kick against the goads? Or will I be so prepared so that I can respond appropriately when God does move in such a way as to disrupt my comfort? Will I respond with hope and optimism? Will I believe that this too is for my good? Will I believe that God is at work in my life doing things that uh, at least from a limited perspective seem difficult but in the long term really are a benefit to me? Will I respond that way or will I react? Will I react with resentment and pessimism? Certainly all of us know something of what it's like when things don't go well, when, when our prayers aren't answered instantaneously, uh, when we have to struggle through some issue or some disappointment, uh, how easy it can be for us to be angry at God. Anybody ever be angry at God? Resentful? And you find you dig your heels in, you don't want to come to church, you don't want to pray, you put your Bible down, you're not going to open it, you're making your statement to God. But all that emanates from a a rather shallow view of who he is and what he's doing in your life. That's a pessimistic, negative understanding. All the more reason why we do need to have some spiritual disciplines and some spiritual principles underlying our life. Because if we're not careful, we can become quickly preoccupied with complaining and grumbling. That's the human way. We, we do grumble. We do complain. We know that we shouldn't. Paul writes in Colossians, do everything without grumbling or complaining. You say, I wish I could do that. It is possible, apparently, if he tells us. But the question is, sometimes we get into a habit not even thinking, and we, and we develop a pattern of, of, of living and of being that is unbiblical. We find ourselves, in this case, maybe complaining about life, complaining about our lot in life, complaining about our trials, complaining about the difficulties, complaining about this and that, and grumbling all the time. When, in fact, that's sin, isn't it? It's very human, but it's sin. And where, if we were better prepared, with a better perspective, I think, then I think when these things come, we would at least catch ourselves. Temptation's there, but now a new habit, a new pattern. And these habits and patterns, uh, they're so easy to develop, aren't they? We tend to exist at, at the lowest level Our flesh is lazy. Our flesh is uh, not want to serve the Lord. There's a battle between the spirit and the flesh the Bible talks about. And so it's very easy for us to get into these habits and these patterns of living and of being. I I talked to uh, uh, a young lady a couple months ago about uh, her eating disorder and how she binges and purges. And she does it without even thinking. She's just in a habit now. You know, and, 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 and everyone wants to know what's all the psychodrama behind all of this. No, it's just a sinful habit she's gotten into, and, and, and she just needs to stop it, repent. If God is living in her, he'll give her the grace and the power to do that. I believe that with all my heart. Not all that complicated. And so... 
life is like that. The challenge for us is to not become preoccupied with our complaining and our grumbling because if we do, we will miss that which God is doing in our life. We'll miss those, if you will, golden moments to grow, to make some new discovery about what God is doing, about who he is, and what he wants of our life. All of us have had aha moments, haven't we? You go, and it just, it's just God, it just God reveals something to you, and you just are startled for that moment. What a wonderful moment it is, and you never forget it. But most of the time, if we're not walking with him, if we're not focused, if we are given to uh, being just human, if you will, at the lowest level, we're going to miss those moments, I believe. So as we anticipate this new year, think of the dozens of things God's going to teach you, the many ways that you're going to see him work in your life and through your life in the coming year. How many want God to, to do great things in their life this year? How many want God to do great things through your life this year? Tell him that. Say, say, God, I want you to do great things in my life this year. Just say that. Make that declaration. And God, I want you to do great things through my life this year. You say, say that to him every day. God, use me today. Work in me today, work in my life, and work through my life. Your will be done in my life today. And God will do amazing things. So with this new year sprawled out in front of us, we again need a spiritual game plan. So that's why I want to call your attention to the passage in Psalm 119. Look at the first 16 verses with me. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Isn't that a, that's a marvelous statement, that very last statement. I will not neglect your word. How many times do we, in fact, neglect his word? Now, in those first eight verses, I want you to notice that they, those verses affirm three absolutes. These are unchanging realities. And these will undergird our principles as we look at them. The first of the three absolutes is the reality of God's blessing. Verse 1 and verse 2 both affirm the blessing of God. God blesses. God longs to bless. He wants us to have every good gift. He's not some mean curmudgeon in the sky. He is a God who blesses. Isn't that a wonderful reality? In Psalm 40, verse 5, listen to the psalmist here. 
Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. You could translate that word wonders as blessings also. The things you plan for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. God, the things that you have planned and prepared, we can't even comprehend. You have good things for our life. And the greatest of those things is salvation. Isn't that true? In Isaiah chapter 55, a familiar passage to many, again, you see the same principle. Now, God is writing here directly to Israel. The context is to Israel. And they're anticipating being carried off into captivity in Babylon. It's the discipline of God in their lives and in their experience. But then he promises to bless them through it all. Now, we can read that and we can extract the principle to apply to our own life too, all right? So verse 6 of Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. That's a blessing, isn't it? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. In other words, I don't do things the way you do them. I don't think the way you think. I'm trying to get you to think the way I think and do what I do. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Isn't that a marvelous reality? God's words are not just out there for no reason. They are powerful and they will accomplish the ends for which he sent them. And he sent his word to bless. He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to have a hope. He goes on and he says this, You will go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. What a beautiful picture of blessing. Instead instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. And this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. In other words, the Lord's blessing is meant forever and ever and ever. And his glory, he will be glorified through it all. So again, the reality of God's blessing. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, we see the same principle. Again, God's speaking to Israel. Uh, He's going to bring them out of their captivity in Babylon. He says, I know my plans for you. Does God know his plans for your life? Are they plans to harm you? No. He says, I know my plans. Uh, they are plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We have a tremendous hope. Every person in this room, if you are a true believer, you have a tremendous hope. And translate that word as confidence. I have a tremendous confidence. God is at work in my life. He has a terrific plan for my life, and he is working out his will. It just remains for me to cooperate and to participate with him and say, yes, Lord, I want to follow your way. I'm going to quit digging my heels in. I'm going to quit objecting. I'm going to quit complaining. I'm going to quit trying to figure it all out. How many know you can't figure it all out? It's just simply trusting him. I trust you, Lord. I know that that you're leading me down a path. I don't understand it all, but I, I trust you, and I know you understand it all. So he has plans for us, and they're plans that we have a a hope, a confidence, a future. 
You're praying for your kids. Lord, I know my lives, the, the, the lives of my kids are in your hands. And I pray for them. And it doesn't look like it's going good right now, God. <laughs> but I trust you. I'm going to continue to trust them to you. In Romans chapter 12, uh, the last part of verse 2, the Apostle Paul, speaking about the will of God, the purpose of God, the plans of God, he says that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Say that with me. Good, pleasing, and perfect. In other words, it's the very best. God's will is the very best. And so if it's the very best, our prayer is, God, don't let me miss your will. Because your will is the very best. You see, so the first absolute that you must have undergirding anything and everything that you think and believe is the reality of God's blessing. The second absolute, this is just as critical, is, that, is, is the authority of God's word. Ask yourself this question. Is God's word authoritative in my life? In other words, do I always look to God's word? Do I learn God's word? so that I might have wisdom in my life, is the Word of God, is the Bible, the authority for all that I believe, all that I think, and all that I do. That's absolutely imperative. The Bible, for me, is, is the absolute authority. I don't care what anybody tells me. If it's not in the Word of God, if I can't find the Word of God, I don't even go there. Now, there, there are things that are unbiblical, and things that are non-biblical. Unbiblical is they're, they're, they're anti-God. Non-biblical, you, you can't necessarily find them in the Word of God. But the point is, is, is the Word of God your authority for your life? Um, in the first eight verses of that psalm, you see rehearsed again and again and again these terms. The psalmist says, he speaks of the law of God, his statutes, Precepts, your decrees, your commands, your righteous laws. Again, your decrees in verse 8. So he keeps rehearsing the reality of God's word. And he, he uses language and terms that speak to the authority of God's word in his life. In 2 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, uh, the third absolute is the necessity of God's presence the necessity of God's presence. Do you practice God's presence? You say, well, I believe in God. But do you practice his presence? Are you, humanly speaking, consciously aware that God is not only with you, but he lives in you by his spirit? Where you go, God goes. I have God with me every place I am. He has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. Isn't that marvelous? I am never alone. And so, given that reality, do we practice his presence? In verse 8, he says, Do not utterly forsake me. Uh, you could translate it this way. He could say, Lord, keep a grip on me till I have learned to obey you in this world with its many temptations. How many times we'll pray, oh God, be with me, be with me, be with me. When in fact, our prayer should be, God, thank you that you're with me, thank you that you're with me, thank you that you're with me, thank you that you'll never leave me, nor forsake me. Sometimes our prayers, I think, betray unbelief. 
It's as if God has gone to lunch or something. You know, oh, God, I'm here all alone. And uh, uh, Where are you? Be with me. Rather than say, Lord, you are with me. There's a threatening circumstance, but nonetheless, I'm going to go through this because I know that you will be with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Paul says, God is able to make all the grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will be abound in every good work. What a marvelous verse. The context, remember, is Paul's writing to the Corinthians who he has previously written to them. He's taking up a collection for the churches. They've been slow on making their contribution and they're a little afraid and worried that, well, you know, they make the contribution, they're not going to have anything left over for themselves. And Paul says, no, 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 no. God is able. See, when you practice the presence of God, that's your belief, that's your confidence that he's able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So you're free from fear and anxiety and, and those kinds of things. Because you're practicing his presence. You're aware. You know. God, you are here. You are with me. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, same idea. How many of you thought God has spoken to you or, or, or there's been some charge given to your life or something and you think, oh, I could never do that. Maybe the pastor wants you to give a testimony. And you say, oh, oh I could never do that. I could never stand up and talk. Wait a minute. What about this passage? I can do what? Everything. Not most things, not some things. I can do everything because of Christ who what? Who strengthens me. Who, he gives me the strength to do this. I can go through this thing. That's practicing his presence. A person who's practicing the presence of the Lord in his or her life is a person who says that. I, 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 sure, I'm afraid, I'm intimidated, but I'm not going to let that keep me back because God will strengthen me to do whatever. Does that make sense? John chapter 15, verse 5. Again, another uh, perspective on this practicing the presence. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You know that, a, that, a, that the nourishment comes up through the, through the trunk, through the, through the vine, and on into the branches. And if the branches are cut off from the vine, they can't bear fruit. So he picks up that same analogy. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you cut yourself off, you can't do anything. If you're not practicing his presence in your life, you're not going to be aware of the resources that he has and confident of those resources so that you can bear much fruit. So these are absolutes. These are, these are vitally important for us uh, as we begin to look at and establish, again, uh, a game plan, a spiritual game plan for uh, our next year. Now, given those three absolutes, verse 9, he asks this question. It's a question that everybody will ask to one degree or another, and maybe even more particularly at the verge of, on the edge of this new year. How can I live my life in a manner that's pleasing to you? That's my paraphrase. The verse actually is, how can a young man keep his way pure? But the reality is, how can I live a life pleasing to you? 
How can I live a life that makes sense? How can I live a life that is going to be fruitful? So you can paraphrase that verse uh, any one of those ways that all make sense. Lord, what's the secret? Well, the secret's found in the next seven verses. How shall I live my life? Well, if you're looking for a spiritual game plan that really works, here it comes. Six principles to implement. First one, seek the Lord on a regular basis. See, this key here is consistency. Verse 10, I seek you with all my heart. Now, does that sound like someone who's seeking God on a consistent basis, on a regular basis? Not half-hearted, not partially. In the Bible, the, the Bible compares King Saul with King David, and, and King Saul, the scriptures say, was half-hearted, and David sought him with a full heart. And you see the difference between the lives of those two men and the fruit of their lives. So first and foremost is we're going to have a game plan for the new year. We want to be able to seek the Lord on a regular basis. But if those three absolutes aren't in place in your life, you have no confidence to seek him on a regular basis. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Part of that is just that you would pursue him every day. That you would keep him involved in your, in your everyday stuff of life. Include him in your decisions, your plans, your fun times, your struggles. Again, the key is what? Consistency. Consistency. Turn to your neighbor and tell him the key is consistency. You remember from Proverbs chapter 3. I mean, we all start out well, well meaning, well intentioned, but the challenge is consistency. Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Wow, what a promise. You know, uh, this, this past, I guess, two weeks, uh, two weeks ago, uh, those of you that may follow professional football, uh, Reggie White was a, a strong Christian, very outspoken Christian professional football player and all-star and all that sort of thing, and, and he had just died, um, I guess, two weeks ago. And uh, I, I, fascinating, I, I, I heard an interview of him uh, just, that it was done just this past year, just before he died. And some of you may have heard and seen that same interview. And uh, if you know anything about Reggie White, he was very, very, very outspoken, uh, Christian, uh, ordained minister, and would have lead Bible studies and all sorts of things. And he said after he retired, uh, it became apparent to him that he had uh, said a lot of things, done a lot of things that weren't always from the Lord that he thought he'd heard the Lord say. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I think God told me to do this, and I'd gone off and done this thing, and it wasn't really from the Lord in the first place. And so on ref upon reflection of his experience, he said so much of what I had said and done that I thought God was telling me to do, it was just me. It wasn't God at all. And he was so shaken to the core by that that he had committed himself to be much better equipped in the Word so that he knew the Word and he wasn't just relying on other people's stuff. And uh, he, they said that he, was, he, was, he dedicated himself 10 hours a day studying the Bible 
in the original languages. He taught himself Hebrew. He was reading the Old Testament in Hebrew. He was learning Greek for the New Testament because he wanted to know the word of God. He wanted to parse the verbs himself. He wanted to understand the nouns and the adjectives and the declensions and all the, the parts of speech and syntax because he did not want to lean on his own understanding. He wanted to be able to acknowledge the Lord in all of his ways, trusting him with all of his heart. You see, seeking him. Here's a man who ostensibly, you could look at his life, you hear his testimony, you watch him in his life, you say, wow, Reggie White, he really loves the Lord, and he really seeks the Lord. But if you had asked him personally now, in, in, in retrospect, he said, no way. He said, but now I really put myself to the task of seeking him with all my heart. Does that mean that all of us should quit our jobs and study the Bible 10 hours a day? No, it's impracticable. You can't do that. But the challenge is there's more that we could do, be more serious about seeking God. Would you agree? Psalm 37, familiar passage again to many of us. Again, it, it speaks this idea of, of seeking God consistently. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he'll do this. He'll make your righteousness shine as the dawn, and justice of your cause like the noonday sun. All of that, again, speaks to this commitment to seek the Lord. We know, that we know what it's like to seek people, to seek stuff, to seek things. Do we apply the same principle to seeking the Lord? Lord, I'm going to seek you with all my heart. We'll run hard after you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Again, the context of that passage, Jesus tells people, don't be anxious. How many have been anxious about stuff? Anxious about the rent money. Anxious about what I'm going to wear. Anxious about the job. Anxious about this or that or the other thing. All of us. Anxiety is just right there, isn't it? It's like sin is crouching at the door. It wants to devour you. Anxiety is crouching at the door, wanting to devour us. But Jesus says what? Don't be anxious about anything. Don't let anxiety capture your life. And he goes on to talk about all the things that we, the classic things that we get anxious about. He says, your heavenly Father knows what you need. He'll provide for you. Don't worry about it. Don't fret over it. He said, put these things in priority. Seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God says, and, and I'll, I'll take care of everything else. I'll provide everything you need. I know what you need. I mean, every parent understands this, and you say the same things to your kids growing up. Right? Don't worry. Daddy, Mom, take, we'll take everything. Just, this is the things I want you to pay attention to. God says the same thing to us. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says here, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever it is, in the name of the Lord. If you will, as unto the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, there's a good one. Give thanks in all circumstances. He says, For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You mean God expects me to give thanks in the middle of this? Yes. Oh, 
Thank you, God. Why? Because Romans 8.28 still holds true. Because, again, you have confidence that God is going to use even this thing, whatever it is, for your good because you love him and are called according to his purpose. His purpose. It's always his purpose. See, it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? The second principle is treasure his truth in your heart. Verse 11 of our passage in Psalm 119. Treasure his truth in your heart. He says, I have hidden your word in my heart. What does that mean? It means memorize the scriptures. Memorize the word of God. Rehearse it. Rehearse it. So many times, I think when we get out of school, we, we, many people just quit reading, they quit exercising their brain muscles, and, and our minds can turn to mush. We can't think, can't chain hook thoughts together, can't articulate. And then our minds become playgrounds for the devil and for all manner of foolishness. And if we exercise our, our mind, commit God's word, his word is powerful, it's alive, sharper than a two-edged sword, it says of itself. Learn verses. Memorize a verse. Here, there's a bunch of verses in your notes I've given you. Memorize those verses. Then when you've memorized the verse, go back and find the passage that it's, it's set in and memorize that passage. Then when you memorize that passage, memorize the chapter. Then when you memorize the chapter, memorize the book. Are we allowed to do that? <laughs> what an amazing exercise. What an amazing exercise. Commit his word to memory so you can rehearse it. You can speak it out. You can speak it out. I don't know how many verses, how many passages I have memorized. I can't begin to count them, but over the years, just verse after verse, just memorize them, memorize them, memorize them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Somebody said that a heart full of treasure leaves little room for trash. Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. See, all of that is to treasure the word of God, the truth of God in your heart, in your life. Third principle, openly tell others of him. Verse 13 of Psalm 119. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. With my lips, I recount all that you've said, all that you do, all that you call upon. Something wonderful happens when we open our mouths and we speak to others about how God has changed our lives. How many have a testimony? Let me try that again. How many have a testimony? Well, let me just do this. How many are Christians? If you're a Christian, you have a testimony. You have a testimony. You just tell people what God's done in your life. 
openly tell others. Last year, I went to my 40th high school reunion. I think I told you about this, didn't I? I went, it was a Saturday night after the service. I, I, I went over to the Hacienda Hotel. It was where my high school class reunion was being held. Unbelievable. I still can't. So I, obviously, it was 10 o'clock. I get there late, and everyone's, they've already been drinking and partying and having a good old time. And so I'm the last one to arrive on the scene, and I look in the door... I look back outside on the door. It says, Bishop Montgomery, class of 63. I look back in. I say, who are all those old people? <laughs> I thought, oh, and I, I began to look really closely. Who do I know? And then I just, you know, one, oh, yeah, I rec- oh, that's, oh, my gosh. <laughs> now, when you look at other people, you don't always look at yourself. You don't think of yourself as old. I don't think of myself as old, but I'm old. And I'm looking at all these people, they're old. And they look old. So I ventured in, and I began to connect with people, and, and you know, we began to talk and reminisce, and hey, have you seen so-and-so? You know how you do all that kind of stuff. And uh, a number of them already know about my path that I've been on for the last uh, 25, nearly 30 years now. And, uh, and so... You know, they were just asking me, well, how are you doing, you know, all that sort of thing. And, but there were a lot of guys there who didn't know. I hadn't seen one guy since I graduated from high school. He moved down. He was an expatriate in Australia and had come up. They located him down in Australia. He'd come up just for this reunion. This guy was just a space case. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to be pejorative about it, but, but the, just he was just, it was tragic. And, I mean, he was a serious athlete when we were in school, you know, and, and so he's asking me about my life, and I got to share my testimony with him. And he was just amazed. Another guy I hadn't seen since high school, and we played football together, and uh, he's now a psychologist. <laughs> and I shared my testimony with him. But all of that to say this, all of us have a testimony, and the question is, do we share our testimony? Do we tell other people about what God has done in our life and how he's changed us and how he's given us a hope? We all know about the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, to go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them, What an exciting thing was you're making a disciple when you introduce somebody to Jesus Christ and they receive Christ. Then you get to bring them here tonight and and, and you get to participate in their baptism. What a wonderful thrill that is. And you begin to teach them all that God has taught you in in, in, in the way that you've learned to trust the Lord. Making disciples. Just think, if each one of us, you've heard me say this before, if each one of us this year, this year, would purpose to lead one person to Jesus and disciple that person this year. Would that be astounding? One person might make that a a goal for your life this year. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Again, Jesus is telling his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want all people to hear about me. And I want you to tell them. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. There are far too many Christians who are ashamed and afraid to speak up. They're embarrassed. There are far too many Christians. Christianity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the church, is the best kept secret in this world. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. He's Lord. Make that sure in your heart. Because you'll have to do that so that you will always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do you have a hope? Let's make this the year that we make our faith known, that we tell other people. Not that we're Christians. We tell them that we're followers of Jesus Christ. You tell people you're Christian, automatically the ball goes up. Everybody follows somebody. I'll ask people, who do you follow? Who's your mentor? Who leads you? Who do you look to? Who, who gives your life direction and meaning? And invariably the question will rebound back to me. And I'll say, I follow Jesus Christ. We tell them who we follow and why we follow him. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Fourth principle. Rejoice and delight in all God's workings. Rejoice and delight in all God's workings. Look at verse 14 of Psalm 119. He says, I will rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Verse 16, I delight in your decrees. Rejoice and delight in all of God's workings. His word, his testimony, his principles, his truth, his actions. Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter, again, writing to people who are suffering terrific persecution for the cause of Christ. He reminds them in the first part of that uh, that God has given them a a new birth, a new inheritance. He says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. This is what God has done, this working in your life. So you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have have, have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now these trials have come, he says, so, uh, so that your faith, which is more worth, uh, worth, greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So God is doing a great work to strengthen our faith. But the thing is, we rejoice in what God has done and what he's continuing to do and how he redeems all these things. So rejoice and delight in all God's workings. How many know that when you delight, you smile more? When you delight, you smile more. Right? You can always tell a person who's delighting or not. So let your delight shine. Fifth principle. Spend more of your free moments meditating on God's principles. Spend more of your free moments. I mean, you're going to be thinking about something when you're driving. You're going to be thinking about something when you're standing in line. Rather than growing impatient, what? Meditate on his 
principles. You're going to be thinking about something when you're on that treadmill. You're going to be thinking about something before you go to sleep. Why not think on his truth? Why not think on his principles? Why not think on those verses that you're memorizing? Psalm 1. Recall the first two verses. Draws this terrific contrast between the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers. But blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditate. Think. Psalm 39, verse 3, same idea. My heart grew hot within me. And as I meditated, the fire burned. Wow. And then I spoke with my tongue. Something was burning in me as I meditated on your truth, meditated on what you want. Psalm 77, verse 12. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. You just read the Bible. You, you just meditate on all that God does. You're just amazed. Psalm 63, verse 6. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Psalm 119, verse 148. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. On one hand, he can't get to sleep. So if he can't get to sleep, he's going to meditate on God's word. On the other hand, he deliberately stays awake so he can meditate on God's promises. Nothing like laying awake, thinking, meditating, rehearsing on the word of God, on the truth of God, the promises of God, the works of God. And lastly, the sixth principle, give God your full respect. Give God your full respect. Honor him in every way. Whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. He's worthy. Don't hold back. Trust Him completely. Maybe this year is the year you decide to truly begin to live by faith. Trusting Him. Not holding back. Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. God, you are worthy, you are awesome, and you are mighty. Psalm 34, verse 3, Glorify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. Psalm 89, verse 7, In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Isaiah 25, 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. God, you're amazing. You're incredible. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Amazing. Be still and know that I'm God. Worship him. Honor him in all things. Beloved, without God and without a game plan, a spiritual game plan for your life, life can be nothing more than a monotonous repetition of days, weeks, months, years, seasons, decades, and generations. 
You all know what I'm talking about. We all know how routine and mundane and monotonous life can become. But if you have a spiritual game plan and your orientation is as, as we've outlined this morning, life will not be monotonous. It will be a joy. It will be exciting. It will be a thrill. You will be fruitful and God will be glorified. So seek him on a regular basis. Treasure his truth in your heart. Openly tell others of him this year. Rejoice and delight in all of his workings. Spend more of your free moments meditating on his principles and give him your full respect. Amen?